So we're in, we're at an uptick of the persecution again uh, of the church. We see that Herod comes in and lays violent hands on some of the members of the church. So why does, um, why does Luke include this in his account of the church? I think he wants to show that God's sovereign even over the kings of the earth and to show God's passion for his glory. God is jealous for his glory. We can see that in this passage. And we ultimately, that's where we find our happiness, is in his glory, not in ours. And in fact, to find happiness anywhere else is not only fleeting, but is treasonous and leads to death. Why do we need to hear these things? Why do we need to hear... Um, we, can, we find our ultimate happiness in God's glory. I, I think we, most of our life, we don't get to see how God works everything out. We know that he will work all things out for good. We don't always get to see it. Here we see how Herod persecutes the church, but then God brings justice. But our lives are more often lived in verses 1 through 5. Just, and so let's, let's review them. Verses 1 through 5. At that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison and delivered him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison but earnest prayer for him was made uh, to God by the church. So imagine being there at this time. Um, God had done some miraculous rescues from prison before, but here King Herod um, killed James, an apostle. This is the first apostle that is martyred. Um, So a leader of the church gets executed, and then Herod takes the lead apostle and imprisons him. What is God doing? Imagine if you were the church at that time. What is God up to? Why would he let the enemy take hands on the church? Um, to share a personal story of a valley, so that I feel like one, verses 1 through 5 are a valley in the church. It's, a, it's the point, um, it's like um, when the disciples were witnessing the crucifixion of Jesus, they did not know what was going on. They didn't know that he was going to be raised again. They, they, they thought all of what they were um, after was, was ending. And we go through similar things in our life where we question God's goodness. Um, one of those things, or one of them is a story about my uncle Hector. Um, some of you, I hope you all met him. He was actually at our wedding about a year ago in October in this very building. It's when me and Danny got married. Um, and it was a wonderful mix of people. It was, I think people had the best of times. I know we had the best of times. Just seeing the church family and our families mixed together. And I hope you met Hector. He was somebody you might have seen, seen dancing on the, on the dance floor. He was a, a bubbly, joyful, exuberant guy. Um, but about a month later, we found out, and Hector found out, that he had cancer. And a very progressive form of cancer. So all of the family started praying for Hector, praying that the Lord would 
deliver him. And he was put through all kinds of different treatments. And he battled it until September of this year when he died and went to be with the Lord. When a tragedy like that happens, um, you need something deep to anchor you into God's goodness, to know that God's good. When your emotions of having lost someone so close. So, what, so imagine the family of my uncle, how that would felt. Their emotions and the circumstances all say different things other than God's good. They seem to say, God, where were you? So we need something deeper than our emotions and our circumstances to remind us of, of God's goodness. Yeah. We need something more than greeting cards to cheer us up, more than pithy sayings like, I'm sure God will bring sunshine tomorrow, and, or I'm, I'm praying for you. Those things need to be said, but our hearts need something real to grab onto, not something to just brighten our heart in a moment. We need something to grab onto and sink our teeth into. In this passage, um, the church was in a valley. It had lost James, one of the disciples. This is James, not the brother of Jesus, just to be clarified. Not the brother of Jesus, but the brother of John, the sons of Zebedee. Because later on you see Peter says, tell James this. So it's two two Jameses. Um, When we're in a valley, um, what are we tempted to do? What, what, What do we trust in? Do we trust in our control? I would say, especially when I'm not in control and things are going bad, I'm tempted to grab the controls like nothing else. I'm tempted to say, but please, let, let, me, let me take the reins for just a little bit. Let me, I, can, I think I can do better. My heart says that. I think we have two options in this text. Where do we run to? We can run to pride, which is what Herod had, or we could run to God's jealousy for his glory. And I, I think through this text we can see that how, how beautiful and secure the jealousy of God is, even though it threatened Herod. But what? But think about it. What do we normally admire in people, in the culture? Um, what does the cultural term being a boss really mean? That means someone who's got it together, who's working it, who's got a great job, who's got their circumstances how they want them. Think of how we praise the stars in, um, or the, the sports players. You, you're like, man, did you see so-and-so in the game? Did you see how that he, he was? You praise them because he's, they're powerful and you admire them. And, but that's not how God wants it us to work. He doesn't want us to seek our glory, but to seek his. But let's look at seeking the glory for ourselves. Let's look at Herod. Herod is the penultimate of being in control because he was king. There's no other higher court than him. So when you're king, you can do anything you want. Who do you need? You don't really need anybody. But even so, let's see what the text reveals about Herod. So let's um, so why, why would Herod kill James? Um, a peace, peaceful church, not, not doing anything military, not challenging his authority. 
why would Herod kill James? We're not told anything specific, but there's only a, a handful of motives you can look to for someone. One of them is pride, the other is envy. I think you might say that Jesus' words say it best in John 5, 44. How can you believe, he's talking to the Pharisees, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the, the only God? How can Herod believe this message of the church when he gets glory from men? James's worldview presented an alien and an opposite one to his, saying that you don't need to seek your own glory. In fact, you shouldn't. You should seek God's glory. So I think Herod killed James to preserve his deluded self-image of self-glory and get praise for himself, not to some other God, not, not to this Jesus. In John 3.19, we see that the judge, Jesus, or we read in John, and this is the, is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and cannot come to the light. So the message of the church would expose Herod's self-pride, and he would not only not want to hear it, but he would hate it. That's, that's why I think Herod um, killed James. But why did... So he, he killed James, just one of them, but then he imprisons Peter. Let's look at the text and see why. In verse 3, And when he saw that it pleased the Jews... He proceeded to arrest Peter also. So we see Herod's motivation here. Because it pleased the Jews, it, that's why he imprisoned Peter. And you, and you see this throughout the text. Peter, Herod does things so that he gets applause from men. But wait, I thought Herod was the king. What is Herod? Why does Herod need anything from anybody. People need stuff from him, like Tyre and Sidon. They needed the king's food. Why did Herod need anything? Well, we can see that even at the height of what you can be, the height of control, the height of you being the man, you being in control, you having it together, is you still crave praise. You still crave it's not enough. I think that's, it's telling that um, you find so many cases of depression among celebrities because at, the, at that height, they're getting all the praise they can get and it's still not scratching their heart's itch. It's still not enough. So though Herod was a king, he was a slave to what people thought of him. And he was... He was and... He wanted the praise from people so badly that he put four squads of soldiers onto Peter. He might have heard that Peter had escaped from prison before, but now Herod's trying to make sure that, no, 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 he's going to present Peter before the, everybody and get applause as he executes him. He's going he's to try to make sure that he can get his praise. And, and another telling factor that Herod is all about what other people think of him is why does Herod wait? Why does Herod wait to execute Peter? Well, because of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. 
Well, I don't... So the Jews, again, he wanted to please the Jews by capturing Peter and respecting their holiday. Um, it's, it, this is very telling about Herod's motivation. Applause are never than enough. Yehoff. Testing, one, two, three. Okay, <laughs> we're back on. Um, and how often do we crave the approval of man? How are we any better than Herod at times? Herod was not like us in that he was a king, but he's so, he, can, he can be so much like us because we want to look good in our own eyes. We want to be someone thought of as good. We want to look good in front of others. We can see so easily, I can find my heart seeking glory from man and not from God. I personally want to be thought of as smart and wise. I want to win friendship by my sheer smarts. I might seem like a humble guy. My heart covers up for that by wanting you to tell me how humble I am. And I know these things are true of me because as soon as I stop getting applause and the approval of others, as soon as people try to reprimand me in a loving way and give me an opportunity to improve, I see what my heart does. I see that it's quick to blame shift, quick to justify and not to listen. How often do we do the same? How often do we exchange the glory of God for a lie? So jumping into the next part of Herod's... uh, um, what happens next, we see that he, I would say there's an opportunity for humility. So Herod tries to secure the people's praise by imprisoning Peter and is getting ready to execute him. And what does God do? He displays his glory by delivering Peter out from under his hands, out from under their noses. It's, and it's a miraculous delivery. So there are four squads of soldiers, one squad for each of the four watches of the night, so there'd be four soldiers at guarding Peter, one prisoner at all times, two at the door and two chained to him. And so when the angel wakes Peter up and leads him out, he's leading them out in front of all these soldiers, whether they were asleep or just couldn't see him. I don't, we're not told, but leading out in front of the prison and the gates opening by themselves. I mean, this is a miraculous um, deliverance. It speaks of God's wonderful glory. But Herod could have taken the disappearance of Peter and said, maybe it's true what they said. I had four squads of soldiers on him, and yet God delivered him. Maybe what James and Peter are preaching is true, but that's not what he does. He resists any, any attempts to humble him. 
God does this with us. God takes away our prized possessions, the things that we think we need in our little kingdoms. We should not resist his humbling. Hebrews 12, 5 through 6. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones, the one he loves and chastises the son whom he receives. Herod should have taken what happened to Peter as a warning that you can't challenge God's glory, that you can't say, you can't take the credit, you can't take um, the praise for yourself. It only belongs to God. But he persists in it, and we see what happens to Herod. That there's no way, there's no one that can stand in God's way and rob him of his glory. We see um, in verse 20, I'll just, I'll read that passage again. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes and took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, a voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an, the, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not res, uh, give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Stand up to God. Try to steal his glory. Ultimately, he, he will try to reprimand you, but in the end, he will get his glory. He, he took the, out the enemy of the church without the church doing anything. The church didn't mount arms. The church didn't do anything, and God defended his church. Can I hear an amen for that? Amen that God's protection is greater than our action, greater than our action for what we think we need to be doing the church, all the church gets credit for in this passage is prayer. They prayed. And what is prayer? Just admitting that you can't do it and telling God that you need his help. Um, but I, I often find myself in, in Herod's character. Apart from the saving works of Christ, I couldn't take my eyes off myself. But praise be to God that when the angel of the Lord visited me and saw my pride and me not wanting to give God glory, that when lightning struck and I saw my faults for what they were, that they weren't just me thinking good of myself, but they were an assault against God, that when the dust settled, I didn't find myself dead, but I found Christ dead in my place, that I wasn't the one killed, that Christ was killed in my place. That though I, I can be so often about my glory, that he, he loved me enough to teach this rebel humility. The lightning of God is coming, and no one can be left standing. It says in, Revel, in Romans fourteen eleven, as I lit. As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every 
tongue confess to God, there's no one going to be left standing. We all must either give all the glory to God, all the praise to him, or be, or be um, struck down by him. But it's good for, for him to want us to give him all the glory. It's good. It's where we find our happiness. So how do we find God's happiness and his jealousy? He, you see, God's jealous for his name. When Herod did not give glory to God, when Herod did not give glory to God, he struck him down. Why is that good? Why is it good that God's jealous for his name? Because of who God is. God is not like us. There's, there's ways we are made in God's image. So there's ways that we are like God, but then there are other ways that we are not like God, that we can't take his place. We can't be on a seat. We can't do things that only God can do. God is the source of all goodness and life and truth and beauty. It would be unloving for him to not demand our love for him. We, there's nowhere else to go. There's nowhere else we can find happiness other than him. Our only option is prayerful humility, which I think we see in this passage. Like I said, the church doesn't get credit for much. Like you can't say, man, Peter was, uh, was such an example here. You see that he didn't even think what was happening was real. He, the, the angel had to wake him up. And then only after that did he realize, oh, the angel delivered me? Wow. The church, but you see the church praying. What does prayerful humility consist of? Submitting to God's way of doing things and giving him glory. He created all things, and in all things they exist. That's reason enough to praise him. He made all things and made all things good. Sin is what corrupts and corrupted us. We need to submit to him getting glory and not us feeling important and in control. We need to give him the glory. And I find it amazing and such, so evident in my life as well. But in this text, I see God getting glory through the weakness of his people. So you see, the church wasn't on it. They didn't. Living in verses 1 through 5, they were probably confused, but they still prayed to God. But God didn't need anyone to defend him. He could defend himself. He could defend his church. Uh, makes me want to be on God's side. <laughs> makes me want to lay down my glory, my, me wanting to feel important, and making him great, because he is the only one deserving of it. He's the only one deserving of that greatness. Another, another story similar to this one, and I'm glad, we, um, I'm glad it was pointed out what an Ebenezer was, but we need Ebenezers in our life. We need something to remind us of God's faithfulness when things are going topsy-turvy, when our emotions and our circumstances, when tragedy strikes, we need something to keep us grounded in him. So the story behind Ebenezer was, is one of God doing God's glory and not really as people um, deserving anything. So they, the Israelites had just finished 
a battle with the Philistines. Or they had just lost. And so they, they, they tried to think of how to get, and def, uh, get back at them and defeat them. And they thought, well, let's bring the Ark of the Covenant to the battle. That will surely let us win. So the Ark of the Covenant was a sign of God's presence. But notice that they, they didn't pray to God. They just brought the Ark. What happened was they were humiliatingly defeated and they lost the Ark. The, the symbol of who Israel was, it was a symbol of God's presence left Israel for a time. Pretty bad. But in the Philistines' territory, God mocked the Philistines without doing, having an army, without having Israel. In the temple where the place, where the, of their God, the Philistines' God, was um, Dagon, every time they went to check on the ark next to this God, it was always falling down and bowing to the ark. And the Lord brought plague on Philistines so much that they wanted to get rid of the ark, said we can't stand having the ark. Um, so they sent it back to Israel. And that's, that's what the story of Ebenezer is about, is God was with Israel, and he gets all the glory. We may not understand why the Lord does the things he does, but we can know that he's faithful. We don't always get to insight into the why, into God, God, why are you doing this right now? I, it hurts so much. It hurts so much. It, thinking about the story about my uncle, it hurt a lot for me and Danny to hear that he had passed, but it hurts even more for the family. And we, our hearts do ask why, but we have to be content knowing that we don't always know the why. But we can know that he is faithful. And we know that he is sovereign. So, and God is even sovereign and faithful over evil. So it looks like, starting in verses 1 through 5, that Herod is winning. He, killed, he got his hands on James, and he killed James. Like, couldn't God have delivered James? He could have. But we see that even before then, Jesus predicted and that this would happen. In Mark 10, 35, so this is the James that we are talking about. They got killed. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And they said to him, we, uh, what do you, and Jesus said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, grant a, us to one to sit at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink of the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism which I am baptized, you will be baptized. What was the cup that Jesus drank? The cup of God's wrath, of persecution. The persecution of the Jews killed Jesus. And James drunk of that as well here. Herod, Herod might have thought he was winning against the church, but God was sovereign even over that. God knows when he's going to take every one of us home. We're not going to go a minute sooner than, we, than, than his timing. We can find comfort in that. 
comfort in that God's ultimately going to bring justice. So how can we do this? How can we rest in God's glory for our happiness when our hearts can be so easily um, wanting our own glory and our own control? How can we exist in prayerful humility? Praying, praying and being humble is so hard. Um, I, I know for myself, it's so, what, what do I do when something, when I think about my first reaction, when a situation isn't going according to plan, or when, it's, when I hear some bad news, what's my first reaction? It's, it's usually, what can I do? How can I fix it? How can I do something about it? Let's, if, if that works, then I get the credit. I'm, I'm now after my own glory. It's so often not, I need to pray because God's in control and, he needs, and he's going to work all things out. So we need Christ. We need Christ to give us this new heart. To, we need Christ to not, to stand in the way of God's angel that would strike us down for not wanting to give God all the glory. We need Christ to, call, to give our rebellious hearts hope. So that when he takes us through the valley, we can be humble and pray rather than question God. And we can find happiness and hope in the midst of the valley. I'll end with um, tying up the story about my uncle Hector. There was a beautiful thing that spoke to what, what God had done in Hector's heart um, at the funeral. Time after time, as people come up to spoke, it got mentioned a couple of times, which was amazing. There was something they said that, that spoke about where Hector's hope lied. He said to, to multiple people, and it kept getting repeated as people went up, that Hector would tell them, either way, I win. Because either way, he would either see God's glory through a miracle, or he would get to see God's glory personally in heaven. Despite the, the, despite the evilness of cancer, despite how, what it was doing to his body, how tired he must have been, what it would do to his family, he knew that God would win either way. That was, that, that was such a remarkable testimony to me that either way he wins, either way we win if we are on God's side. Family, we need this kind of hope so that when we go through life's valleys, which are many, amen to that? <laughs> life's valleys are many. Um, this life is not a bed of roses. That we can hold on with hope that God is not off his throne, that he knows exactly what he's doing, that when we're living in verses 1 through 5, that ultimately there's a verse at the end that tells we'll find out in the end how God is working all things to good and we'll ultimately see why he thought it was worth it. Family, we need to repent repent of our selfish pride and prayerfully come to Jesus. God's kingdom is unstoppable. Make peace with the king of the universe now while there's time and then be still and know that he's God. Let's pray. Father, our hearts, um, 
Our hearts are in need of this. If, not, if we don't feel the need for it now, we'll, we'll, we, it'll be sometime in our life that we'll need, we'll need a hope that sinks deep, deep, deeper than um, the circumstances of our life. Because when they're, uh, the circumstances of our life are totally topsy-turvy and, and, we're, and we're losing things left and right, that we can know that we are yours and that we are being taken care of and that you are sovereign. And that you don't need anyone to, to, um, to, to defend your name, that you will defend your name. You will protect your church. You will protect your people. Let us lay down the banner for our own kingdom and submit to yours. Let us give you glory. And in so doing so, find our ultimate happiness. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.